The metaphor that I use that parents tend to find helpful is this idea of a board of directors, right? So think about every major corporation or major organization in the world that has a board of directors that guides their strategizing and their decision-making. Just like that organization, your kid has their own board of directors. But for your kid, it's like a virtual round table of the people who they're listening to and paying attention to as they figure out what it means to be an adult in the world. So think about who's on that. It's, you know, hopefully a teacher or two. It's their friends, for sure. It's celebrities they're following on social media. It's sports figures they idolize. It's musicians whose music they love. My core premise to parents is that your number one goal is that you want to have a seat on their board of directors. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I will be your host again today. You know, as parents, teachers, and caring adults in the lives of kids, we all want the same thing, and that's to see them happy, self-confident, and ready for the adult world. For over 25 years, Joshua Wayne has worked with kids in just about every setting imaginable, including drug and alcohol treatment with at-risk foster youth, community mental health, private practice and as a director of special education at District of Columbia Public Schools. A former struggling teen himself, Joshua understands deeply what teens are going through. Joshua speaks across the country to schools and youth organizations on how to help kids today become successful young adults tomorrow. He's the author of The Simple Parenting Guide to Technology. Josh helps youth face the challenges in front of them and make smart, empowered decisions as they navigate toward adulthood. He also instructs parents, teachers, and other caring adults how to best love and support them through this process. He has trained and consulted across the country for police departments, school districts, state and local governments, and youth organizations on how to work effectively with teens and their family. Joshua holds a master's degree in counselor education from Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago and is a nationally certified counselor. He has been featured as a life coach on the Style Network and is the co-creator with Josh Shipp of the One Caring Adult Online Community. He currently lives with his wife, Bettina, and son, Hunter, in Washington, D.C. I'd like to introduce you to Joshua Wayne. How are you, Josh? I'm great. Great. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here chatting with you. Um, I'm so happy to have you today. You know, the, each and every episode, I promise my audience two things, and that's to be inspired and to learn some practical communication techniques that will help them in their life. And I think something that we all struggle with. I have three children now, all past their teenage years. We all struggle with those conversations that we have with teenagers, especially the ones who are going through some difficult times. So this is a great episode. I can't wait to air this and have my audience hear what you have to say. You know, as coaches and counselors and trainers, so much of what we do depends on our credibility, right? So I know when I'm asked to coach physicians who are struggling with their communication skills or to train doctors, 
how to deliver tragic news. The fact that I'm a physician and I work in one of the busiest neonatal intensive care units in the country gets me at least in the door with some credibility. So I think it's probably best if we just start out by you telling everybody your story and your journey on how you got here. Yeah. As part of my bio, as you read, I consider myself to have been a struggling teen. There was a lot of questioning I did about myself. As a teenager, my self-confidence was just very low as a kid. My self-worth was really low. You know, experimented with drugs and alcohol in high school. And were it not for a couple of significant adults that came into my life at critical times, my life could have very easily gone down a different track and into, you know, onto a self-destructive path. You know, even going back a little bit further, because it's funny how sometimes these things work out, but I grew up in a family, very, you know, comfortable middle-class upbringing where I had everything I needed and most of what I wanted, but there was this underlying discord in my parents' relationship. It's kind of a classic, they stayed together for the kids kind of scenario, and there was a lot of fighting and, and discord, even though it was, you know, we were loved and they came to all my sporting events and all that sort of stuff. But there was that underlying thing that is a sensitive kid really affected me. Mm-hmm. And I just remember having this feeling of like, family should be a different experience. And uh, what I saw my parents, what their marriage was like. So anyway, it's, when I say it's funny that how these things play out is that it's incidentally, I then became a family therapist, right? That became the path that I followed. I didn't intentionally map it out you know, there was no equation in my head because my parents had these problems. I want to go be a family therapist, but I think sometimes we're instinctively drawn to work out our own issues. There was something in me that I was still probably trying to figure out at a certain level and really learning to work with at-risk youth, you know, kids that could have been me, you know, some years before operating in a similar path that I could have gone down. And then seeing their families and then the problems that their families are having, it just became this natural thing for me to want to really help them and apply myself there. And it was just almost like an intuitive thing that just uh, gradually, but definitely led me to want to be working with at-risk youth and their families and helping the kids have the tools they need to feel better about themselves and more confident about themselves and ready for the adult world. And then also, if I can't connect with the kid in my private practice scenario, then I found that I can often work with the parents and really guide them to strengthen their relationship with their kid. You know, for for whatever reason, I couldn't make a connection with the kid. I could still help the parents change their dynamic with the kid and get totally different results in their relationship. And that really became my mission is to help families thrive and and improve their communication and and build stronger relationships. There's something that you said during the last few paragraphs is that if it weren't for a couple of adults that changed it. And I heard you say once, I think it was in an interview Every kid is one adult away from a success story. So can you elaborate on that? Because I love that. Yeah, it's actually every kid's one caring adult away is the, the actual phrase. And it's actually, I borrowed it from my uh, a colleague and friend of mine, Josh Ship, who's been a, a mentor and friend of mine, if you, you may have heard of him. The idea is that, that every kid needs at least one caring adult in their life to help guide the way, right? It's like, doesn't mean some kids can't or won't figure it out by themselves, but if there's at least one caring adult that shows up to provide guidance, to provide an ear, to provide support, that can make all the difference in the world. It's really a relationship at the end of the day that changes a kid's life and helps them work through whatever obstacles are in their way. Now, sometimes that's going to be the parent 
or the parent may be one of those caring adults. And sometimes it's going to be somebody else. It's going to be a therapist. It's going to be a coach. It's going to be a teacher. It's going to be an uncle. It's going to be a neighbor. It doesn't really matter where it comes from, but having those caring adults to help show the way to help guide us because someone's got to show us what it means to be an adult in the world. You know, we're going to figure it out regardless. But I think one key thing is who are those role models? Who are the people that we're looking at and adopting our values from as we're trying to figure that out? You know, for me, that was helpful because I had a couple of really significant caring adults that came along and, you know, as I said, at critical times, but also really put a certain focus on my work because now I am that caring adult for a lot of particularly young men, but a lot of young people to show up in their life as that person where they can just, hey, this just I, I just had this fight with my girlfriend or this disagreement with my parents, or I'm applying for this job interview, or I screwed up this job interview. What should I do better next time? Just having a sounding board to say, hey, like I don't really know what to do. What would you do? Because there's that trusting and caring foundation in the relationship that they can rely on. You know, as you know, I'm in healthcare and I teach doctors how to improve the patient experience, and I teach communication to nurses. The single most important thing in healthcare right now is the trusting relationship between the healthcare giver and the patient. And that is often difficult to maintain in today's society. But I started this podcast back in August. We've been wildly successful. I've interviewed people in business and in healthcare. And those two words, trusting relationship, comes up almost every single week when we're discussing on how to be a true leader in business, when we're discussing how to be an effective doctor or nurse, and now we're discussing how to bring up a teenager. That trusting relationship is really what it's all about. And it's amazing. What I love about communication is that once you can learn how to build trusting relationships with anyone, it will help you in your personal life. It'll help you in your private life. And I think you said that it's the single most important thing that parents have in favor is a trusting relationship. What advice can you give to parents to help them build that trusting relationship? Not necessarily with the troubled teen, but hey, I had three children. It was not easy, you know, and thank God they're the youngest one is 21 now and he's in college. The other two are working and, you know, they're, they're doing well. They're successful adults. But my goodness, Josh, there's times when it's not easy, <laughs> you know, and my wife and I have two different parenting kind of styles. I think that they really helped because, you know, I was brought up more strict than she was. But speak to that parent out there who's gone, my 16-year-old child is just driving me crazy. How do I get her to speak or him to speak to me? Now, the metaphor that I use that parents tend to find helpful is this idea of a board of directors. So think about every major corporation or major organization in the world that has a board of directors that guides their strategizing and their decision-making. Just like that organization, your kid has their own board of directors. Hmm. But for your kid, it's like a virtual roundtable of the people who they're listening to and paying attention to as they figure out what it means to be an adult in the world. So think about who's on that. You know, hopefully a teacher or two. It's their friends, for sure. It's celebrities they're following on social media. It's sports figures they idolize. It's musicians whose music they love. My core premise to parents is that your number one goal is that you want to have a seat on their board of directors. I like that. You don't need to be the chairman, but you need a seat at the table. 
because it's the only way you are going to be one of the people that they're coming to and seeking advice from when the big things hit. And they always hit, right? Now, they're not going to tell you everything because we're talking about kids and teens in particular after all. But when those big things come, if you successfully get yourself on their board of directors, you can be one of the people that they're talking to. Now, the only way to get and stay there is to have, back to your original question, is to have a relationship that they perceive as valuable, okay. right? If they feel they can talk to you, and more importantly, that you'll listen without judgment, without lecturing, then they'll put you on their board of directors. But it is a relationship that we have to constantly manage and constantly nurture and tend to, to stay on their board of directors and to keep that connection strong. Now, in terms of just some practical advice, if my hypothesis is right, that getting and staying on their board of directors is the most important thing, and that it's the strength of your relationship that will get you there. One of the most surefire ways to get yourself excommunicated from their board of directors is to, is to be fighting the wrong battle. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, what is parenting? In some ways, it's the series of decisions you have to make around, is this a battle I'm going to fight with my kid? About the clothes on the floor in their room, mm-hmm. right? About putting their phone away at the dinner table. Or is this something I'm just going to let go of? And the reality is, is that parenting, it's a balancing act between those two things, between, hey, like, as a parent, of course, I have to have boundaries and structure and accountability. Like, that's a core function of parenting. But we also know as parents that we need to give them room to figure things out and to fall down and learn to pick themselves back up again. So really learning to navigate, uh, to walk that tightrope, if you will, around what battles you're going to fight really, really becomes one of the main things. So we can talk about where some of the things to, you know, that are probably the, the better battles to fight and some of the things worth letting go of. But that really becomes it because if you are fighting the wrong battles with your kid, you're going to waste all your relationship capital. Agree. If you're yeah. constantly fighting about school and homework, for example, or about their room or about the people they're hanging out with. Now, I'm not saying that sometimes you shouldn't fight those battles, but if you're always in conflict with your kid, it is going to weaken your relationship. And they will increasingly tune you out. And you would, the last thing we want to have happen is, particularly as they're teenagers and the stakes get higher, and they start to have to make more sophisticated decisions around their behavior online and pornography and drugs and alcohol and sex, all these more high stakes decisions that they're making, the last thing we want them to do is feel alienated from us. Because then we can't even be a part of that conversation. I agree with you totally. So you, you really want them to come to you when they have an issue and the only way to do that is to establish trust with them. Is there a way that you recommend, you know, this is my practical episode. I'm getting practical advice from yep. you right now. What's the best way to let your kids know that, you know, it's okay to come to me when things get really, really bad? Is it just picking your battles? Well, I mean, it's, it's also the other, the flip side of the coin is, is that you have to keep the relationship vital and energized and active and current. You know, you've got to find some way to be doing stuff with them whether it's throwing the ball around. It doesn't have to be super fancy or sophisticated, but you also, you have to have a relationship where they can relax around you and let their guard down. They can't just do simple things with you, like throwing a ball around, you know, geeking out on some sci-fi show on Netflix, just hanging out, riding bikes. If they can't just do simple stuff with you, it's going to be really harder to get to the deeper subtext of what's really going on in their life. Kids need to be able to relax around you. They need to feel like they're not on their guard, that you're accepting them. 
And so the other piece of that is, is that you have to find some way to keep the relationship active. You have to find some way to keep the, just a sense of having fun together. And to be positive, we had Dr. Helen Reese on an episode a couple months ago, and she's an expert on empathy. And Helen Reese spoke about a study of children who are brought up and the ratio of positive and negative comments. And I, if I remember correctly, she said three to one to five to one was the perfect ratio. You don't want to give them compliments all the time, you know, while you walk really well, you know, when they're 15 years old, but giving them some positive comments for three or five of them for every negative thing. And I think there are some households when you agree that the household is so negative all the time. And I think the kids pull away, correct? Yeah, totally. Totally. And, and, and listen, as a parent myself, it's hard. There's this quote, I'll botch it a little bit, but you get the, the intent. When you have a child, it's to know what it's like to have your heart go walking around outside of your body. Absolutely. You know, and it, and it is almost excruciating, the, the love you feel and the concern and the care and the desire to protect. And I get that. And the trick then is not letting our own anxiety just overflow into everything where we're constantly correcting them, constantly telling them what to do, because the more we do that, the more we're fighting against their natural need for autonomy and they're wanting to be able to spread their wings and take flight. In some ways, it, it requires a fair amount of self-control from us as parents to, to slow down, to relax, to take some deep breaths. You know, going back to the whole thing around, you know, what battles to fight, one question that I find really helpful to ask myself as a parent, but also is a piece of advice to parents is to ask themselves this question, can I let go of this? Mm -hmm. Look at all of the areas of conflict you have in your life with your kid, their room being messy, not cleaning up after themselves, issues around curfew, issues around just being respectful in the home, school, all these areas where there's care. It's like, can I let go of it? Now, certain things you probably can't and you shouldn't like basic issues around safety and respect, knowing where they are, following curfew, using the car only with permission. Those are always non-negotiable. But there's a lot of other things that we might get uptight around. Like I keep going back to the room because this is low-hanging fruit that mm -hmm. something is better off for parents to let go of. You know, if they're just leaving their clothes all over the floor, stop doing their laundry for them. They have to figure it out sooner or later. I think what really helped me is having a spouse to help me bring up my child who has a different way of looking at things. I happen to be a worrier. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot harder for me to let things go. I'm the type A personality overachiever became a physician just by pure hard work. Mm -hmm. My wife is also very successful, but she was brought up very different. My father was on the SWAT team in Newark, New Jersey. So you can tell how we've been raised totally different. And it really resonated what you said, because I had a lot harder time letting things go than my wife. And my wife grabbed me sometimes and said, you know, you need to let this go a little bit. And without her, I don't think the kids would have had that balance. And so let's pivot over to difficult conversations because that's what this is all about. One of the things, well, many things scare me to death as a parent and to all parents, but one of the things I really want to talk about is suicide mm -hmm. and suicide in teenagers. I think I heard you give some, some statistics about a study that you did with suicide ideation, but that is something that I think for all the topics haunted me the most. Not that there's any depression or suicide in my family or it's totally irrational, but I can't imagine there being anything worse for a parent. And kids go through difficult times and many of the people that children who commit suicide don't tell anybody. Tell me about suicide and some advice on 
how we can maybe pick this up earlier, that conversation specifically that you have with your child to say, how do you approach the conversation? If you ever have these thoughts, please come to me. Yeah, well, let's just first talk about the statistics. In 2014, suicide became the second leading cause of death amongst adolescents, only behind accidents. And it's a real issue. It's a real serious issue. I, you know, we're also having this conversation in the midst of the prolonged COVID experience. And the CDC put out a statistic. I think it was one in four young adults seriously considered suicide in the last 60 days or something like that. Wow. And it's a major issue. You know, what's also interesting, just by way of just current events, in 2011, 2012, the adolescent anxiety and depression rate starting to really spike. That was the same point in time. And for those of you who can't see me, it's, I'm holding up my cell phone. That was the exact point in time where we crossed the threshold where more than 50% of Americans were in possession of a smartphone. Wow. So, you know, it's, you can't say the cause is there, but the correlation is unmistakable. So along that trajectory, that's around 2011, 2012, 2014, suicide becomes the second leading cause of death amongst adolescents. By 2017, three out of four teenagers have an iPhone. So it's an unmistakable correlation between device use and increased mental health concerns with adolescents. And they discussed that on a recent movie that I just saw called The Social Dilemma. Mm -hmm. I just actually watched it last night with my wife and those exact statistics were brought up about the, really the relationship between iPhones or social media and suicide. So how do we have that conversation with our child to let them know that, please tell me if things are getting bad? Because most parents don't have a clue, right? I think there's a couple things. One is that I go back to my board of directors metaphor. This is still the first and foremost thing you have to work at. Because if you're on their board of directors, of course, there's no guarantees, right? But your chances of them coming to you when something serious is going on are so much higher. That's why I say this idea of at least having a seat at that table is the most important thing. It's more important than their grades. It's more important than their choice of friends. It's more important than what college they go to. It is a thing that matters most. They're going to be okay. If they have a good relationship with you and they have a, a general sense of, of decent values in life, they're going to be okay. You know, so I think we have to just really do that inventory. Like, am I freaking out about my kids' grades and my kids' school and worrying about what college they're going to go to and, and bringing that anxiety into my relationship with them? Because that's going to chase them away. Mm -hmm. right? So again, you have to go back to that inventory of all the things you have conflict with in your relationship with them and find a way to reduce it. What can you let go of so you can strengthen the relationship, work on having a strong relationship? So that's the first thing. The second thing is I think you have to have an explicit conversation with them. And I think with kids in general, with teenagers, very often the way to have the conversation is just to call out the elephant in the room. Hey, I want to chat with you about something for just a few minutes. It may be a little bit weird, but it's really been on my mind. I just need to talk to you about it. You know, I heard the statistic about suicide as a second leading cause of death amongst kids. I'm not trying to, you know, make you, you know, feel like you have to talk to me about whatever's going on in your life right now, but I just, I need you to know that if you ever find yourself in that situation, that I am here, and if you don't think you can talk to me, then there are other adults in your life, and you have to think about who they are you can talk to. Maybe it's, it's grandma or grandpa, maybe it's Uncle John, maybe it's your teacher. There are other adults, if you can't talk to me for whatever reason, there are other adults out there who care about you and love you, and you can talk. And you just have to plant that seed and let them know that I'm here for you. And if for whatever reason, I'm not the person for you to talk to about it, please find another person. And is that the same angle that 
We would take when we're concerned that our child is doing illegal drugs or maybe be getting messed up in the wrong, you know, how do you have that conversation? We're pivoting off to the next topic, but how do you have that conversation? You know, I think my child might be in in a bad crowd. He's having, you know, because those conversations don't go easy because how does it usually end? Dad, leave me alone. I'm fine. Nobody says, yeah, you're right, dad. I am experimenting. Is that all about the relationship again? And how do you have that conversation? Yes, it's about the relationship because the stronger your relationship with them is, the more A, they'll talk to you about stuff, but B, the more they're likely to behave in accordance with your values when you're not around, right? You know, Mm -hmm. you don't want to upset or disappoint mom and dad. They're less likely to behave in a way, you know, you wouldn't want. Drugs and alcohol is tricky. There's no simple sugar coating. I don't think it's just a matter of having some conversation with them. You know, I don't think it's a matter of talking to them about how their brain is not fully developed until they're 25. And if they smoke, like all those things are true, but they've mm-hmm. been hearing that since they're in sixth grade or whatever it is now, that if they just wait until they're 22 and they're out of college before they drink or experiment with marijuana, for example, then their chances of becoming an addict are 80% less. Again, all these things are true, but it doesn't really address, I think, how most kids are making decisions these days. So I think the first thing we have to do is also just check our own values on this. You know, I mean, I've worked with parents who literally range from, you know, talk about, let's just say marijuana is just a a common and, and obvious example. You know, I've worked with parents who felt that their kids smoking pot would be the absolute worst thing that could possibly happen and would be a surefire predictor that their life's going to go off the rails. And I worked with parents who were upset that their kid found their own stash and took it without asking. (laughs) And and, and everything in between. So I do think that there's some level of just checking our own values around it and having, you know, just honest conversations about it. I mean, the reality is, is unless you lock your kids in the house and in their room, there's no way to absolutely completely prevent it. So I think the better play is to try to keep the relationship strong, try to see the world through their eyes. And just have honest conversations with them about it. If if you found out they're experimenting, instead of freaking out and yelling at them and getting punitive, I think the more, generally speaking, the better conversation is, okay, so what did you think of it? Mm -hmm. Did you like it? What did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? That's a tough one, yeah. It requires us to be in an uncomfortable position. But if you're having that conversation, there's at least a conversation. Great point. The reaction is, if I catch you doing this again, you're going to be grounded for six months. You're not leaving the house. I'm taking the car away. I mean, the reality is, is for some kids, you might scare them out of doing it for a period of time. But for a lot of kids, they're just going to become craftier at hiding it from you. And then again, it's back to my original point is then you're out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. You have no ability to influence them because they made a decision that this is something I want to do or my friends are doing and it's okay. And by the way, there's this whole other thing with you know marijuana, which is you know besides alcohol, the most common drug kids are using today, that it's now being legalized all over the country. So there's this whole other conversation, whether we want to acknowledge it or not going on in their head around whether it's actually a harmful thing or it's really just a plant and an herb and and all that. So there's this whole other conversation going on in their head. Our job is to try to be a part of that conversation so we can love them, support them, help guide them, help them think critically about the decisions they're making. And in particular, if they do find themselves in a tough spot or it is becoming problematic, that we can be one of those caring adults in their life that's there to help them, you know, they get the train back on the track if things are starting to slide off. 
And going back to technology, you're also fighting a lot of stuff on the internet that's not necessarily true. In my case, I'm a physician. So I'm having talks with my kids when they were younger about neurotransmitters and, and real science about why it's not great to do drugs. And then I get an iPhone little thing on Twitter that goes, see, dad, that's not true. And I'm showing them real medical studies and they're looking at me going, I don't know what you're talking about. I just read this on Twitter. So you're fighting the technology too, right? For sure. For sure. You know, like, and again, with some of these things, you're fighting a whole kind of cultural momentum. The movies they're watching glamorize it, all these stoner comedies and stuff that they're watching that make it seem funny and cool. And again, there's this whole legalization conversation. So again, like that's the conversation that they're in with their friends and internally. If we want to be able to influence it, we have to be a part of that conversation. Part of the board of directors. Yeah. love that. Not just the conversation that we think we should be having around them, but the conversation that they're really having around it is the conversation we need to find a way to be a part of. Great. And it's not always easy. Now, you work with a lot of troubled teens, and I want to get your opinion on this because one of the things that's really in the news right now and really front and center is the role that fatherlessness plays in troubled teenagers. And I'd really like your comments about that. How much is important is that? And there are a lot of young teens that are growing up without fathers, either divorced or never had a father that was in the house. How do we best help those troubled teens? Comes back to be trying to be the caring adult in their life. They need a male adult somewhere. You know, I know mothers are doing a great job, but they can't do anything. So they need somebody else in their life to help out, right? Yeah, in my opinion, I, I agree with that 100%. I think that, you know, again, this, this does not in any way undervalue the importance of mothers or, or the women in, in the lives of young men. But at a certain point, from my experience, they need a man to show them what it is to be a man in the world, you know, and it, it's the things that that man says to them. It's just watching how that man behaves in his own life, how he conducts himself, whether it's, you know, <laughs> at a restaurant and how you interact with the server to showing up for work to how you relate to and take care of your own family. They just need those role models to see on a day in day out basis to see how men, adult, healthy, strong men behave in the world. They absolutely essential and need that. I'm not going to get the statistics right. I've read about them and seen them, but I, the, the recall will, will be tough. But if you start to look into the literature around it, a father in the home is one of the greatest predictors of success, just from a sheer statistical standpoint. You know, a, a child without a father in the home is something like nine times more likely to wind up in jail, you know, eight times more likely to be poor and to be on some kind of public assistance. There's a whole litany of statistics like that the number one predictor is a father figure in the home. I read a statistic about 30 years ago. It was a study that said, if you have a father in the home that actually play, we're talking about sons, that does, uh, for lack of a better word, roughhousing play, play wrestling. I used to wrestle with my sons. We pretend to roll around in the, that those children were much less likely to be violent when they were adult males because during that roughhousing, the father actually says, okay, that's a little too far. Right. You know, and they learned that. And I thought that was a fascinating thing. And my two boys would love to play wrestling with their dad when I got home. And, but I welcomed it. It was fun, first of all, but I also welcomed it because I knew about that statistic. And I think that's really emphasizes how important it is. But there's so many young kids not growing up with fathers. But there's also great organizations like Big Brother and, and other organizations like that that I think we really all could help. And 
I don't think there's enough of them where they're funded enough, are they? Probably not. But I, I agree with you back to your point. I think the rough housing, there's a very healthy aggression that men have, mm-hmm. you know, but it needs to be tamed. It needs to be channeled in the right direction. I mean, that can also be an enormous attribute towards being successful in life. If you have that sense of assertiveness, let's call it. And I think a lot of times you can, you learn that from your father. And I think you can learn that from wrestling. And in the thing you mentioned, I, I've seen similar studies where that is where they learn healthy boundaries, right? You learn that you can be forceful and assertive, that there's an appropriate time and place for it. And you learn that from your dad roughhousing with you, when to turn it on, when to turn it off, what's going too far, what's appropriate. And that teaches young boys these very, very important boundaries that they can then later translate into other relationships and into work life and into all kinds of stuff. But they had a healthy outlet for that natural assertiveness or aggression, however you want to call it, that healthy aggression. And that's why I always think boys and girls, it's so important for them to get involved in sports or get involved with something because now they have somebody else in their life, a coach. And how many children will tell you that the coach turned their life around? We're a family that we've, all my sons and myself, we all played football. And whether you're a football fan or you want your kid to play football, I'm not going to get into that. But if you think about it, football is a very violent sport. But what happens? The whistle blows and everyone on the field freezes. They just stop. And so it teaches these boundaries and it teaches just like the father roughhousing. There's another example of, okay, we can get our aggressiveness out. And then what happens at the end of a football game? Do you know it's the only sport where at the end of the game, both teams shake hands? Mm Mm-hmm. except for the Stanley Cup and the NHL, but that's only during the Stanley Cup. So, you know, I think you're right. So this is, you know, having that person who can teach you those boundaries is really, really important. We're running out of time and you brought up COVID earlier before, but I want to get your opinion on this. Right now we have these lockdowns and we have many children and teenagers living at home and doing remote schooling. Have you seen any ill effects of this as far as suicide or drugs or depression or anything with the children who aren't getting that social interaction in a person-to-person way? Anecdotally, yes. There's that one study that the CDC published that was talking about young adults. So they may be talking about more, you know, 18 to 24 year olds type thing. But I see it, you know, I see my son is six. We're on lockdown and doing distance learning and he's struggling. You know, he's craving to go run around on the playground and tackle his buddies and exhaust themselves and then come home and sleep good. You know, he's definitely missing that. I think a lot of kids are missing that. Some kids, interestingly, and I don't know what the percentage breakdown is, seem to actually respond well to distance learning Hmm. for no reason. I think it's a personality thing. I think certain kids, it actually helps them focus. There's less distractions in the classroom and just sort of being one-on-one with the computer helps them. So I'm hearing some anecdotes that for some kids it's working really well, but I know for a lot of kids, it's really, really difficult. I've read that it's really affecting adversely the lower socioeconomic kids because, you know, maybe they have the single parent, right. the mother's got to go to work, the teenager's home by himself. Maybe they don't have the technology that they need to do the online learning. And if they do, there's no one in the house. You know, if you're fortunate enough to be able to stay home with your teenager and say, you know, please, you know, you have, you have class going for the computer. Right. My wife works at home. It takes a lot of discipline, as you know, sure. to really at home, there's so many distractions. And for a teenager, that's a lot worse. And then while you're online, you know, you get the tweets that pop up and the, the instant messaging, and it's so easy to get distracted. And so yeah. I really worry about what, you know, the social interaction, you know, I spend my life teaching how to form a human connection 
between two different people. And, and there's so many good people out there that don't know how to build that rapport. And I'm a big person on body language and nonverbal language and trying to build rapport. And I can teach somebody how to build a relationship with somebody in less than a minute. That's really hard to do on the internet. You know, it's so much better to do it in person, have a big smile. And so I worry about our kids who are already having trouble communicating in person because they're growing up with the iPhone. And now we're in the era now of homeschooling. So I'm praying that we get through this COVID and we can get back to normal yeah. as soon as possible. I agree so. with you completely. I think kids need to be in school and around other kids. And you know, if you're doing distance learning and, you know, I remember when you're in class, when I was a student, if you fall behind on something, you're in a math lesson or something and you get distracted and you fall a little behind. If you don't find a way to get yourself back on track, you could lose the whole lesson. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's hard enough in class just to raise your hand and ask a question, but but online, it's it's just another again, it's a totally different dynamic. Yeah, I agree. So we're running out of time, but I'm going to ask one final and difficult question that some people have trouble answering, but I'm going to ask you because it's only fair. What do you think is the most difficult conversation that any parent or adult would have to have with their child? And what advice can you give them? We kind of touched upon that, but what do you think is the most difficult one? So I'll answer it, but with a bit of nuance. I think okay. the difficult one is the one that's most difficult for you. Okay. You know, for some parents, it's going to be the drugs and alcohol thing because that's something that gets them very anxious and uptight. But maybe sex is not an uncomfortable conversation for that parent or vice versa. So I think just depending on who you are and what your personality is and what your values are, it could vary. I mean, I think it's going to be, it's typically going to be about choice of friends, behavior online, sex, slash porn, drugs and alcohol, maybe mental health. I think, again, my biggest advice is just to lean into it, just to say, hey, look, I, I, I want to talk to you about something that might be uncomfortable for both of us, but it's on my mind. I got to talk to you about it because I love you and just do it. I love that. What great advice. Funny story. My father was not a very verbal person, you know, the typical stereotype cop. And I remember I was 13 years old. He came into my room and said, mom says I have to have the sex talk with you. And of course, I turned bright red and he turned even redder. And he said, do you have any questions? And I said, I looked down, I go, no, dad. He goes, okay, tell mom we spoke. <laughs> and that was the end of it. <laughs> so I don't recommend that, but that's just, yeah. as you said, it was a difficult conversation for him. So just a funny story. Hey, one just little quick, quick practical tip that also mm-hmm. can be helpful. A lot of times when you sit a kid down, particularly an adolescent, and you want to have that face-to-face conversation, it's going to feel more like an interrogation mm-hmm. than it is a conversation. So sometimes the more nonchalant it is, you're driving in the car where they don't have to face you and you both are facing forward. Or if you're out on a bike ride or you're walking or you're throwing the ball around, there's something else that it doesn't have to be this eye contact, awkward, all your chips on the table right in this moment conversation. Sometimes it can work better when you just diffuse it a little bit with some other environment or some other activity. That's great advice. And I think it makes us as parents more comfortable too, because we don't have to look at the kid. And as my father turned really red also, we're playing basketball in between shots. I, yeah. So, you know, tell me about what's going on. Josh, this has been really, really informative and it's been inspiring and you're just an amazing person. The name of Josh's book is The Simple Parenting Guide to Technology. Josh, what's the best way for people? I mean, they could visit you on joshuawayne.com the best way for people to get in touch with you because you, know, you do so many great things. And I'm sure that you and I can speak for hours and hours and hours about teenagers because there's no book. <laughs> it's not easy. 
What's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they want you to speak at their event or just need some advice? Yeah, joshuawayne.com is the place that's get in touch with me. I got some free resources for parents there, information about my speaking and counseling stuff. It's all right there. Thank you, Josh. This has been great. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please go ahead and hit subscribe. We're on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and many other formats and Google Podcasts. Please go ahead and download all the previous episodes. If you want more information about the Orsini Way, you can contact me at theorsiniway.com. Josh, thanks again. This has been amazing. And I can't wait for my audience to go ahead and hear this episode. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, Josh. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.